0: Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. In this repeat episode from our archives, which was first published a little bit earlier in 2020, my guest is David Brock. Dave is the CEO of Partners in Excellence and the author of an excellent book titled The Sales Manager Survival Guide. And he's also, what he self-described, a ruthless pragmatist. And Dave joined me to talk about developing an effective sales execution framework. Now, as Dave described it, increasingly salespeople and managers struggle to make sense of all the things they're being asked to do and how these activities fit with each other. So, in this conversation, we dig into Dave's suggested sales execution framework. and It's built around four jobs sellers have to execute simultaneously. Demand gen, solving their customers' problems, being in control of their business, and designing high-value meetings. And we'll also dive into how managers can use the sales execution framework to identify systemic shortfalls in their sales process. So all of this and much, much more. Before we get to Dave, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Dave Brock. Dave Brock, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Andy. It's always great to talk to you. So,
1: And thanks for inviting me back again. I really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> well, there's never any question that we'd invite you back. <laughs> so, you look like you're enjoying yourself outside somewhere in sunny California. I, it's one of the few times I am in sunny California, and I'm, I'm sitting
1: outside the, the local library. I've, I, I've been finishing my second book, so uh, the library is a good place to do it without distraction.
0: True, true as long as people aren't coughing and sneezing on you <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> Since we're recording this in the midst of the legitimate panic, I think about uh, our concern, let's say <laughs> about the coronavirus. Uh, so yeah, so okay, we're gonna jump into a couple things real quickly here So one is want to talk about your sales execution framework and mm-hmm. uh, I know is part of your last book. Uh, but something that seems like it's come back to sort of the top of the mind for you. Why is that? Well, it's it, what it is. Is as is I start working with with
1: executives in sales organizations, you know. There really needs to be some rethinking of kind of almost back to basics. You know, there, you know, we, I think we've gone through kind of all these miracle cures and these wonderful technologies that aren't producing the results. And you start saying, what produces the results? Well, it's basic principles of selling that somehow we've forgotten about. Um, So, number one, number two is it's doing the whole job. I, I mean, I think we read so much about cold calling and prospecting. If we only did enough cold calling and prospecting, everything else would be good. But, you know, you have to do pipeline management, deal management, account management, territory management. And if you don't do all those pieces, parts
0: in the right mix, um, you ultimately fail. Well, you make the comment. You said that, that yeah, salespeople and managers are struggling with with make sense of all that they're being asked to do. And you start yeah, reading off the list: territory planning, account planning, deal planning, executing sales process. Actually, at 14, 15 if you counted other. Um, but you know, pipeline management, forecasting, value creation, da da da. Haven't they? Yeah, haven't we always sort of yeah you know, had that responsibility in sales? Why why is it increasingly difficult?
1: Well, we always have, but I think we we've taken our eye off the ball quite a bit, um, and we tend to to get intensely focused in one area. And not realize how the pieces, parts are connected, and you have to do the whole job. The other thing I think is that we don't really identify the right leverage points for driving performance. And and you know when you you know when you know all you have is a hammer, uh, you know pretty soon everything looks like a nail. Well, we have a whole set of tools that we have to use kind of um, appropriately across mm-hmm. everything that we do. And um, and again, I think too much recently I've seen people lose sight of that and just, you know, focus on one area, uh, then the next area, then the next area, rather than kind of doing the whole job. And, and again, going back to some of the basic fundamentals of what drives high-performance selling.
0: Well, do you think that part of the reason we've taken the eye off the ball is that there's sort of this working assumption that I think many in sales have is that you know all these wonderful tools and technology we have actually sort of do the work for you?
1: I, I think that's a huge amount of it. A wishful thinking or or whatever it is, is that you know we have the promise of the tools. if you know if we just had this AI tech capability, is we don't have to do anything, and the tools provide us all those sorts of things. Or if we had these other kinds of technologies, the tools give us the answers. Um, And too often what what I see, and, and this is probably not politically correct, but I see us dumbing the sales organization down and not really giving them the capability to do the critical thinking, the problem solving, to engage customers in the way they need to be engaged, and whether it's relying on a technology, relying on the latest fad, uh in in um in sales, or just copying what everybody else is doing and not doing it very well. I, I think, you know, I think, you know, again we have to get back to kind of what are the fundamentals of how we engage customers? What are the fundamentals of how we create value? Where should we be spending our time and how do we do it in the most effective ways possible?
0: The point being is that that people, could be managers, could be sellers, are distracted by, oftentimes, I believe, by, hey, we've, we've got the ability to collect all this data, so let's just focus purely on the metrics as opposed to the performance that you're talking right. about.
1: And it's, it's focusing on kind of bright, shiny objects and those kinds of things where, you know, again, you look at it is the fundamentals, you know, when you strip things back to the fundamentals and you start working on those, uh, it's amazing how quickly you start producing results. And, you know, as we've introduced this concept called the sales execution framework, we just see, you know, the ability to kind of refocus on what's important, identify the leverage points. We find time to results. Really stunning. Um, I have one client we worked with. I mean, forecast accuracy was a huge mm. issue with them, and within six months, we've moved forecast accuracy from less than sixty percent to ninety-two percent. We've moved win rates, you know, uh, from around uh, this was actually a pretty good company around forty percent up to about seventy percent. And there's no magic to it. It's just it's just looking at are we paying attention to how we execute? Are we focusing on doing the right things with the right people at the right time? And do we do that repetitively and systematically?
0: So it, it, you get a sense from listening to you talk about it and, and reading your your work on the sales, execu- sales execution framework. Sorry, that um, and I sort of feel this way from time to time too. Is that you know there's really nothing new in sales. You talk about people being sort of obsessed with the bright, shiny object, but what you're talking about are, again, fundamentals that have been in existence for for some time. And, yeah, we get go back to the earlier point. Maybe we're just getting distracted by all the noise and the bright, shiny objects. You still have to do these fundamentals.
1: Yeah, it's the basic principles and the fundamentals are the same. You know, we have maybe different ways of expressing them. We have technology that helps us do some of those things a little bit more efficiently um, mm-hmm. and all, but, but still is, you know, again, I think, I think we've been distracted from executing those fundamentals in, in, in doing them day in and day out. Um, and the, it, when we talk to people and we get them
0: back to those things, again, it's amazing how quickly you start producing results. So here's a hypothetical for you, because I was having this discussion with somebody just this week, and because I'd read your your sales execution framework again, I was sort of thinking about you've got these four cores which we're going to get into in a second. But if you're executing the basics in today's business environment, is could you as a sales organization produce as much? without the tools and technologies, if you just focused on the basics as you could selling with the tools and technology? Um, I'll answer that in maybe a little bit different way. I think
1: if you aren't doing the fundamentals and the basics well, um, technology isn't going to help you. I mean, technology will enable you to create crap at the speed of light. Um, is, 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 you know, so if you, if you're executing, the foundation is executing the basics well, then you can leverage technology on top of that to help make you more efficient to be able to do more. But, but it it all starts with kind of those foundations and absent those foundations, again, you create crap at the speed of light. And I think that's what we've seen is, is people have gotten distracted from the foundations to the technology, to the you know, the latest gee whiz kinds of things, whether it's technology or social selling or social media or you know, the latest seminar they went to, is that they've gotten away from those fundamentals. And we see that in the results. I mean, we see survey after survey, year after year of showing declining sales performance and declining sales results.
0: So the client that you referenced with you driving the win rate from 40s up to the Mm -hmm. 70s, what type of business are they in?
1: It's a high technology uh, systems business, uh, hardware, software, solutions, that kind of thing. I'm doing it with a very, very multi-billion dollar professional services business. And we're starting to see, you know, we're starting with a fundamental issue around pipeline quality and pipeline integrity and then getting them to focus on you know trying to figure out what the gaps in the pipeline are and then focus on on you know how we improve win rates on the deals how we improve average transaction size you know we're now we have an initiative around 20 million to 100 million dollar opportunities to say how do we double our win rates on that and we're seeing the the ways of just, again, it's not magic, it's disciplined thinking and problem solving about how we can move uh, the needle and, and uh, dramatically increase the win rates on those things. And, and those kinds
0: of deals really move the needle in performance. And it has nothing to do with tools. Right. So a question I was driving to is, so do you think you could, repli- using this framework, that a company a company could replicate that same success a SaaS company could replicate that same success because here's a, a segment where the win rates, you know, trend around twenty 20%, percent, low twenties, maybe mm-hmm. mid twenties. What would be the key? Because there's what I think oftentimes that seems like they are hamstrung by the technology as opposed to being benefited from the technology. Is what's the key in your mind to work with SaaS company get their win rate up to 40%, 50 percent?
1: Well, I mean, the the SaaS company is—I mean, they're selling some sort of solution, some sort of tool. I I mean, I I think, I think we really misunderstand SaaS. I mean, SaaS is a technology; it happens to be a cloud-based implementation. Uh, SaaS is a payment uh, system—that's a monthly subscription thing. Um, SaaS has been popularized as you know through um, um, uh, predictable revenue of, of being a sales methodology which which actually is is highly transactionalizing the sales process mm-hmm. uh, and where where that works where a transactional sales process is the right approach it's a very very powerful approach what we're starting to see though is some very big limitations if you you know think of the grandfather of of all kind of uh, of the saas approach which is salesforce.com mm-hmm. is is they turned the world of selling uh, and buying CRM upside down from rather these large enterprise deployments mm-hmm. to looking at individuals in departments and making it more of a transactional fast sale you know for um, for 150 some odd dollars a seat I could equip all my people and get them using Salesforce tomorrow and it was a relatively small and low risk kind of uh, investment. Well now as they you know look at trying to say how do we close 10,000 seats at a time how do we how do we close a marketing platform, a sales platform, a, a service platform and an analytics platform in a very very large enterprise, the sales approach needed to sell that kind of solution even though it's the same products is a very, very different sales approach. And I think what we've lost in a lot of sales leadership is that critical thinking to say, what's the right way to engage these customers? How do we engage them? Not how do we just because we sell a SaaS product, we use this SaaS sales technique. Um mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and you know we see so many we get actually so many clients or SaaS companies that say, you know, My sales approach has broken down. It doesn't work anymore. Well, you know, the issue is you're selling to an enterprise. It's a complex decision with, uh, you know, the 11 plus decision makers and and a very confusing buying cycle. And, and, you know, you used to sell it in the transactional process where you were selling to you, Andy, to buy a seat or for your, your team to buy a seat. And so that process is very different, and you don't get people thinking about how has that buying process changed, and am I aligning my sales process with that buying process?
0: Which speaks to, I think, one of the fundamental issues is that that alignment, as far as I can tell, rarely happens. Is that, you know, you and I both have seen Gartner's research on the buyer enablement journey of the spaghetti yeah. guy, diagram they talk about with you know the complex buying process or decision making process or buying process whatever you want to call it that buyers go through and yet i see very few companies that have said well okay we got to change the way we sell in order to align with that where we're still you yeah, know well, i need a linear stage based process blah 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 what have you seen in terms of companies adapting how they sell to this this reality that gartner outlined
1: it is it is i i, I...
0: There are far too few doing it. you know the the leading
1: companies, you know whether they're driven into it by necessity because they're failing and they need to reinvent themselves, or whether they're really astute leaders that that think that are thoughtful about how they engage their customers. And all but far too few people are doing it. and, and again, I think we see that in you know declining overall sales results. we see the CSO insights. Uh, research every year, where we see fewer and fewer people making quota. Uh, we see, you know, he, greater greater turnover in sales leadership and in sales people. So we see all these signs that say we are failing to perform as a profession, um, and we don't see that many people thoughtfully saying, "How do I fix this?" You know, it seems right. that. It seems that, you know, I mean, part of it is the incremental cost of another 10,000 phone calls or another 10,000 emails is virtually zero. So our answer to everything is if I'm not making my numbers now, uh, rather than think about why I'm not making my numbers, is let me just double them. Let me just double the number of phone calls I make. Let me just double the number of emails I make. And if that doesn't work, then I'll double it again and so on and so forth. So, you know, rather than sitting back and saying, this isn't working, why isn't it working? How do we change to get something that's much more effect- impactful is, you know, largely because of technology, the incremental cost of volumes is virtually zero. So our answer is always to increase volumes. You know, I've, I've always thought what if we went to uh what if every sales person had to pay the the price of a first class stamp for every email they sent or what if they had to pay 25 cents for every phone call they made every dial they made how would that change our approach to 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 things like yeah. that i remember i remember years ago when i was funding when my marketing teams would come to me and say we want to run this direct mail program and it's going to cost us this much per piece and so on and so forth and i'd say well are we really going to get results out of it and because that was costing us hard money we went into it more thoughtfully it didn't mean that we were successful but we became much more thoughtful and much more discriminating since technology has made the incremental cost of volume virtually zero we've stopped thinking about those things. And our answer to every um, performance problem is just do more volume.
0: Well, that was really at the heart of the question I asked you originally about, you know, could you sell successfully in today's environment without technology? It was not advocating that you should, but it's it's saying, yeah. if you had to be extremely thoughtful and about how you would attack that problem, yeah, I suspect you'd find an answer. But but uh, it requires a level of thought. That I agree that that people seem to be wanting to sort of bypass because there's an easy way to get more volume right. as you discussed. So which is a good segue into talking about your your framework because your framework is built around your sales execution framework, built around four areas, demand gen, solving our customers' problem, being in control of our business and my favorite, designing high value meetings. So let's uh, let's talk about those in order. So demand gen, Explain what you mean. I mean, I think we know and <laughs> pretty much, but tell us what you meant in that context. De- demand gen is is how do we identify and find new
1: opportunities, and you, we can kind of look at it in a couple of different dimensions. Uh, you know, using old-fashioned sales terms, it's you know territory management or it's account management. You know, it, basically, I think sometimes we overcomplicate account planning. Is is account planning at its core is a structured prospecting process. Right. Um, I remember, you know, in the old days of, of uh, territory planning, we used to do these things. We look at, you know, what SIC codes are in this territory. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we make sure are we covering here are the customers, the SIC codes that are in our sweet spot? Have we identified every one of those? Or, you know, I remember in the old days when I used to drive around in the car, we did something called smokestack hunting because I called yep. on manufacturing accounts. You know, and every time I saw a smokestack, I'd go in and and prospect there. So, you know, so there we're talking about structured prospecting uh, approaches that say, who's our target customer? Um, How do we approach them? How do we engage them? And are we approaching them in a sufficient volume? Well, I don't know that volume or what's sufficient in terms of the volume until I know my sales process and my opportunity management process. And then until I know kind of my win rates, my average deal size, and my, my transaction values. You know, and so now, mm-hmm. now as we start looking at the whole thing as a system, we can start saying, you know, what are the right numbers or where are the leverage points? So I, I, I pose this example to people. Imagine two salespeople. They both have exactly the same quotas. Let's imagine their quotas are $5 million dollars. Both have exactly the same pipeline. Uh, let's imagine their pipelines are $10 million. Mm-hmm. Um, salesperson A has a win rate of 40%. Salesperson B has a win rate of uh, 20%. What do you do? So most, you know, most sales managers say, oh Dave, that's obvious. Prospect more. They need more pipeline. And I say, okay, cool. Uh, why? you know, and, and they say, well, we need three times pipeline. So they have to build their pipeline from 10 million to 15 million and say, well, why are you choosing three times pipeline? Well, that's what sales managers always do is we always have to have three times pipeline. And I said, well, with salesperson A, you might actually be decreasing their productivity because they only need $12.5 million of pipeline to make their numbers. They're pretty good at making their numbers. They only need 12.5 and if you're forcing them to be get fifteen million, you're distracting them from the things that cause them to be very, very effective.
0: Well yeah. They just don't have they don't have the time to work the accounts the way they should. So Exactly. So so
1: you do that. Salesperson
0: B, you know, you get three times pipeline, but they need five times
1: pipeline um, to make their numbers. So if they get three times pipeline, they still aren't going to make their numbers. And then he starts saying, is getting them to prospect the most impactful thing they can do because they suck at selling and so they're going to suck even more at prospecting. Right. What if I first start focusing on improving their win rate and that changes their pipeline dynamics, it changes their effectiveness Absolutely. and starts doing some things. So what, what happens is we see these sales managers not really thinking and analyzing performance and the performance levers. They just come up with these kind of rote answers. And the answers aren't serving us. And so we have to dig in deeper and see where are the leverage points? Where are the leverage points with the organization? Where are the leverage points with each individual? And how do we start coaching those individuals to maximize their performance?
0: Yeah, and I think the one thing sales managers don't do enough of is reverse engineer their process. Is They start at mm-hmm. the top and, and do the math you know, down as opposed to saying, I want a win rate of this. You know, they'll say, Usually they go well to win a deal. I need you know five qualified opportunities. I need fifteen yep. leads. So I'm gonna have to have you know 45, as opposed to saying we want it, We should be able to have a 40 percent win rate. So what does right. that mean in terms of how we prospect? Who we prospect to, and and then the rest of the process that builds on top of that. And uh, yeah, I mean I've seen examples of what you talked about where yeah two salespeople with disparate skill sets. And the answer is always more as opposed to how do I make this person better first? And then let's see what we can do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in our company, we spend a lot of time kind of understanding that and analyzing it. And so we have things like our win rate in our company is somewhere between eighty two percent and and ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's not so much because we're great salespeople, even though we are. It's of course, because we're, because we're viciously focused on our sweet spot, and we don't waste our time outside that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So we know where we have you know a very very high win rates, and then you know so that changes our pipeline dynamics tremendously. We don't have to have huge pipelines. We don't have to be prospecting thousands and thousands of people because. Our pipeline dynamics, our deal size, and so on and so forth are such that that we can we make the most out of everything that we do and so I think it's you know and it's you know our business is helping people do that so we think a lot about it but what i don 't yeah. see is is many sales executives doing the same thing with their organizations and identifying the leverage points like i I mentioned this client i 'm working with right now is we looked at the leverage points and we said their win rates on these very, very large deal sizes is really unsatisfactory. And the best thing we can do to drive performance is figure out how to increase the win rates. You know, part of it is, is, you know, are we chasing the right opportunities? Part of it is re-engaging the customer as effectively as possible. And it turns out when you start looking at it, it becomes really easy to start identifying if I do this, I'm going to improve it. If I do this, I'm going to improve it. And you can start systematizing that and in, in, in really producing results. And, and, again, this one, you know, we've raised the win rate with this particular client. Um, we're trying to move win rates actually from 20% to 40%. We're up to about 30% right now with a few just small changes and improvements in kind of
0: focus. Well and to your point precisely, your account planning, your structured prospecting process, you know, too often now, again, this is more, you see it more in SaaS companies as they fall behind and suddenly managers want pipeline coverage rates to go from three to five, you you hear seven, you hear nine, and it it seemingly never occurs to the people in charge that they are entering into a vicious cycle from which there's no exit when they do that, and, and that the math is pretty simple. Is your win rate is basically going to be the reciprocal of your pipeline coverage ratio. And right. at some point, you got to bite the bullet and say, yeah, we got to be more effective, to your point, at the top in how we do our account planning, our territory planning.
1: Or, or things like, you know, what if I improve my win rate by, by being better at disqualifying? Um, yeah. What if I improve my pipeline dynamics by being better at defending price? so i don't have to discount as much and i can raise my average deal size and right. things like that so so there are lots of levers that we can pull to drive sales performance not just the volume and velocity lever and that's what the sales execution framework's all about is is what are those levers
0: right so the first thing lead gen we just beat that one up second solving our customers problems why is that so hard these days um <laughs>
1: Well, the cynical answer is we, we're we interested in what we sell, not the customer's problems. Um, and, and, it's, it, and It's amazing how simple selling becomes if you start focusing on the customer and their problems and how to do that uh, and how to help them solve the problems. Um, the problems, and you've seen the, the Gartner data as well as I have, the, the, the problems customers have is less around solution selection but more about what are they trying to achieve in their business? What are their goals? What's standing in the way of doing that? How do they mm-hmm. orchestrate? How do right. they orchestrate this this large, complex buying process and make sense of that whole thing? And so it's and we as salespeople focus on the product selection piece, which is the smallest part of the problem that the customer right. is solving.
0: Yeah, and I've. <laughs> Agree 100%. Is when I sort of deconstructed my success in selling large enterprise deals, is a different way of saying it at the time. But it was like, I was focused on trying to say if I could be the seller that helped shape the customer's vision of how they were going to solve their problem, then when they'd move then to the next step of trying to choose who they wanted to solve it with, I was in the driver's seat. Yep. And this is, you know, classic IBM selling from decades ago, but this is, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a part that is just almost completely absent from so many sellers, individual sellers as well as managers' perspectives is what's the job I'm really setting out to do here with solving the customer problem? It's not solving the problem by helping them choose me. It's solving the problem by helping them decide, helping them choose how they're going to solve their problem.
1: Well and if you're in there helping them solve the problem you i mean they almost always default to you or you're in the most favored position because right. you're defining you're defining the ball game and the ground rules um, uh, and helping them define that, so you're always doing that in a way that you, you know I, I think you know we've got to make sure we're chasing after customers whose problems we can solve and not wasting sure. our time on on customers that aren't but but once we do that, and then we focus on solving their problems, we're always in the most favored position.
0: Yeah, I think an analogy for salespeople to keep in mind about this is that you know, they're focused on the, the end target, which is getting the order, when they should be focused on an intermediate target, which is helping the customer decide how they're going to solve their problem. And and I was reading something several years ago about golf, and I'm not a big golfer, but I played it occasionally. But pro golfers, when they're lining up their shot, I know Tiger Woods does this, Jack Nicklaus did it, is they're not aiming at where they want the ball to land. They've picked out an intermediate target like 10 yards, 15 yards, 20 Mm -hmm. yards in front of them that they're really aiming the ball at. If the ball passes over that target, it'll end up eventually where they want it 200, 300 yards down the fairway. Um, and And I think that's really, at least in my mind, is analogous to what we should be doing in sales is the intermediate target is the most important one. And we don't have a chance to win the deal if we don't help the customer make that choice about how they want to solve their problems. Otherwise, if it's not based on us, it'll be based on somebody else, and we're just gonna be competing on price, trying to, you know, persuade them not to go with the people they really think they should go with. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so again, I think part of it is is we don't get the purchase order until the customer figures out this is this is the problem i want to solve and this is what i'm going to do to solve it and if we're guiding them down that
0: you know they start solving their problem and we get the purchase order yeah but sellers so i think about this in two steps first step right. how are we, how are we going to solve this problem yeah you, know, you look at the gartner spaghetti diagram we talked about before yeah, you know, there's four jobs that Gartner identified that buyers need to accomplish in their buying process. Identifying a problem, researching solutions, uh, finalizing their spec- building their specification or requirements, choosing a vendor. So three of those four had nothing to do with vendor selection. Right. Right. And so when you think about that, and also in that chart, which is huge complex, you know, flow chart, the word sales only shows up once. <laughs> yeah i mean
1: it's it's funny how that works, but it's funny how w- what we do is we pay attention to that sales piece, we pay attention to that that you know presenting our solution where that's the smallest part of the customer's buying process, so we aren't being as helpful as we could to them.
0: yeah, and the reason the sales only shows up once, I believe, is because this is you know they were surveying buyers, and the buyers are reflecting. Their perception of the value they get from sellers, in the yeah. main, right? We yeah. can do this largely without a seller. They would rather be able to do it with the seller if you can add value to them and help them make a better choice. And, and I think that's
1: uh, where a lot of people are misreading the data, misreading the literature. It's not that people don't want to deal with salespeople it's just that sales people aren't being as helpful as they can be so customers are forced to look for that help someplace else whether it's you know peers that they talk to whether it's letting their fingers walk through google and do research and things like that but it's not an aversion to salespeople. It's it's they need help and they need answers and they're going to go anywhere they can to get those answers and if it's a salesperson giving them those answers, they'll embrace that salesperson and work with them.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's only aversion to salespeople who waste their time. Exactly. Right. Okay. So your third pillar in your sales execution framework was being in control of our business. What did you what do you mean by that?
1: And and really that's saying, you know, what are the dynamics of our business? You look at it from kind of a pipeline management and and an opportunity management point of view. So, an example, a lot, very large organization I'm working with right now. You know, they, you know, I said, well, tell me, you know, are you in control of your business? Are you going to make your numbers? And how do you know? And they said, oh, our pipeline looks great. And um, and I said, oh, okay, that's cool. Let's look at the pipeline. Well, you know, they had you know the right coverage on it, but then you start looking at the deals. There were of the deals that had projected close dates in the past. (laughs) And I said, I said, is anybody paying attention to these 30% of the deals? You know, they were supposed to close some of them a year and a half ago. What's happened to them? And so, so I mean, and that seems like
0: a silly example, but it's it. No, it's people, a, the way people, the way managers, you know fluff up their their pipeline. They just don't let things yeah, out of it. People do these
1: things, and and so you say, well, you're really not in control of your business. You don't know what's happening. You don't know whether you're chasing a, enough of the right opportunities, the high quality opportunities, to make your numbers this month, this quarter, this year. Um, and you, I mean, you look at, at things kind of at a nominal level and say, I have, you know, I have three times coverage in my pipeline, but you don't look at the quality of that pipeline and the dynamics within it. You know, this same customer, you know, one of my favorite um, fields within Salesforce is the number of times the uh, close date changes. I was mm-hmm. sitting a couple of years ago with a salesperson. He was, had a very, very large deal and he said it's closing at the end of this month i said how do you know he says trust me it's closing at the end of this month but i said well if i look at the history you've been working on this deal for 12 months and you've changed the close date 11 times <laughs> why should i believe why should i believe you this time soon to be 12 right, exactly exactly so you know there's this lack of discipline lack of focus in lack of, you know, you do look at the numbers and say this stuff doesn't make sense. And, and
0: as a result, these people aren't in control of the business. And it seems what you're describing, though, is that not got not to put the blame on the numbers per se, but we've had such an increased focus on numbers that I think I think part of it is to see this num- this this behavior that people are reluctant to let things go and. You know they're fooling themselves right it's just a form of self-deception yeah, yeah I've got this huge pipeline you know 30 percent of it's basically inactive even yeah they haven't told us no but if they're inactive they told you no right yeah so yeah. you gotta yeah I gotta learn to let that go I mean, managers have to has to start there at the top is have to let this stuff go and bite the bullet if that's what it takes and then engage in this framework that you're talking about is is that yeah let's let's go back and look at our Our prospecting, structured prospecting process. Let's look and see if we really are in charge, which is, I think, is one of the hardest steps that for managers to take, is they're afraid to do that.
1: I I think it it goes even a little bit more deeply. I think we look at the numbers, we focus on the numbers, but we don't understand what the numbers mean. You know, in some sense, the numbers are just a red flag. You know, but but sure. you know, once I see that red flag I have to get and say, what's causing this to happen? And then what do I do about that? And so too much of what I see managers and salespeople doing is they're just looking at the numbers themselves
0: and not what caused the numbers. Well, and I think that's an interesting perspective because when you look at your framework, certainly from that perspective, is really what this is is you could say a sales execution framework but it's it's really a sales problem solving framework
1: yeah exactly exactly and it's it's you know and the other thing too is it shows that all the pieces parts of what we do are connected so what we do in territory development and account development impacts our opportunity strategies and our deal strategies in in our sales process which impacts our pipeline which impacts our forecast And all those are, you know, and how do we execute those? Those are based on the high quality value added sales calls and meetings. Mm. And so we have to look at all of these things um, together. And the moment we start isolating them, we start, you know, missing important
0: pieces of information and important interconnections between these. And do you think that a lot of this is driven by the fact that uh, people are served? So wedded to the process that yeah you know, they every time they see something they try to fit it into a niche of something that they're familiar with as opposed to saying well this is new how do I analyze this differently than something I'm familiar with right they they get so stuck in their patterns that yeah everything fits into a certain a certain box but what if this is different what if it's not the same and how do we how do we address that. It's just, it seems superficial thinking, I guess, is part of the issue. But I think
1: that's really an important point. If we, keep, you know, if we keep doing the same thing over and over again and it isn't working as well as it used to be, we have to start asking ourselves, have things changed? Is this different? And if, they, if things have changed and it's different, do I need to change and adapt what I'm doing?
0: Yeah. Well, I, it sort of sprung to mind because a couple days ago, I was listening to a podcast, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast about uh, doing an episode about, uh, I always pronounce it wrong, causatory, sort of the Jesuit mm-hmm. uh, form of, of deep thinking and problem solving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sort of starts with the taxonomy. Is is this like a problem we've solved before and encountered before? Or is this different than a problem? And right. I rarely see managers take the time to to do that type of analysis and if they did it to your point way back earlier in the conversation if you're doing this on a regular basis you learn more about what you're doing and perhaps the need to have your 5x pipeline coverage goes away because you're you're more going to be more effective coming up with ways to solve problems earlier on
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think I guess it's attributed to Einstein, but it's it's you know, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and to expect a different result.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well right. And we're doing a lot of that. But we solve it by doing more of it though. Well, and see that <laughs> that's it.
1: Is is you know, I, I, I one of the things I mean, people think I'm well, I am weird, but people sometimes think I'm really weird when I go in and I say let me meet the laziest salesperson in your organization that always makes her number. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, because that's a person that's broken the code. They've figured out how to get more done in less time. And instead, we don't kind of look at those things and we just keep again, you know, doing the same thing we've always done. It's producing less and less results. So our answer to that is not to rethink what we're doing but just to do more of that uh, you know and and try to produce a better
0: result so I actually had an argu- an argument on this show years ago with a guest who what well, and I, your story recalled mine is she would have fired that saleswoman uh, <laughs> and I said wait so she says yeah if you have if you've got Expectations for some for an organization, you know, you're going to have so much activity at certain dimensions. And she, her point was, I would care for somebody that's 130% of quota if they weren't, you know, generating enough proposals, they weren't making enough calls. It's like, really? You'd fire that person instead yeah. of saying, instead of analyzing that person and saying, what do we can learn from this, this, this person and take what she's doing and try to apply it to other people. It was, and it was just symptomatic. I think of sort of the blind way that the sales organizations are too often run.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you do with that lazy salesperson is just double their quota, and they'll figure out how to do it in the shortest amount of time as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I I was very fortunate in my career to have managers to to give me the the freedom to go do that because I didn't I didn't like I don't I didn't want to sell like most of the people I got trained with. It was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I, I think there's a better way to yeah. do it. I don't know if mine was better, but it was better for me. Worked quite well. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but, yeah, I was fortunate that she didn't try to get me to conform. Otherwise, yeah, I'd probably be doing something else these days. <laughs> so, all right, Dave. last point on that was designing high-value meetings. And as I said before, mm-hmm. I love this one because for me, I think one of the most frustrating thing when I'm dealing with sales teams and talking to sales leaders is that, and individual contributors, it's like, you realize that sales is a, a very deliberate business, right? As you mm-hmm. have to think deeply about every step as opposed to just, yeah, I just got lockstep follow this process we got, got to read my scripts, blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, you got to, if you're not in an interaction with a buyer, if they don't have any value, they're not receiving any value from that interaction, you're not going to get another one. Right. <laughs> Which so often happens, right? So, tell us about this idea you have about designing the high value meetings and, and the value of being deliberate and how you sell.
1: So, so the concept around designing high value meetings, uh, there are a couple principles. Is one is is the customer defines value. Absolutely. And, and and so each you know what's valuable to the customer at this point in time is different from customer to customer is different today, and tomorrow. And so if I want to maximize my ability to engage the customer and create a preference for us is is I'm going to focus on what's most important and what's most valuable to them um, and I'll and, and talk about those things and not talk about the things they don't care about because I'm wasting their time and I'm wasting my time. So that's number one. Number 2 is 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 now you start looking at how do you amp that up and how do you start um, creating more results in the meeting and we started applying some design thinking kind of principles to this and and so i i started thinking the principle we talked about pre-call planning and things like mm-hmm. that so i'm i'm i do my pre-call planning and i'm going to execute something that creates a huge amount of value for the customer. But well, that's kind of one-sided, you know, and, and so we start started thinking, what if the customer comes in as prepared for this meeting as we are? If I'm mm-hmm. doing my job as a salesperson and, and I'm preparing for this meeting, I want the customer to, to have a really killer meeting. I want the customer to be per, as prepared as I am in that meeting so i'm going to right. you know publish an agenda beforehand and agree you know we need this information in order for us to move forward with this will you be prepared to have that are you going to have the right people there so that we can accomplish these things so we go into this meeting with a set of common objectives for which we are each prepared and what happens is we accomplish a lot more with the customer in those meetings than if if we were prepared and the customer wasn't, um, and we the the interesting things are as one is you create more value for the customer and more bias for you. Two is you actually literally cut the number of meetings in half. We yeah. saw that in our our own company is is we used to have something like twenty two meetings per close, and for us, you know, that meant a lot of times jumping on an airplane, which took a lot of time and a lot of expense.
0: Money, absolutely.
1: And and so what we started doing is we started applying this design thinking to our own meetings and to, to making sure we were prepared, but also the customer was prepared. And we reduced our calls to close from 22 down to nine.
0: Well, and I think an interesting perspective on that is because, yeah, it did something very similar, is That the value is not—I think—if you really look at it, the value is not in you know the piece of content you provide or the questions you ask or the insights you provide. I I think the value to the customer is that, as a result of the meeting, they've made progress toward achieving their goal, which is making a decision. That's exactly helping them move forward. Right, and that should—that should be the definition of value in my mind. Definition of value for a meeting is as a result of this meeting the customers closer to making a decision than they were before it started. And it requires right. all things All things you talked about. Pre-call planning on your side, pre-call planning on the part of the customer, an agreement, not only on the agenda, but in exchange for the content, whatever you provided that helped make them smarter about the problem, there's a commitment to what next steps are.
1: I mean, exactly. all these things.
0: Because... You know, getting that commitment helps the buyer. You know, It helps them say, yeah, we've, we've got putting a frame around the time frame for making this decision. Um, and so I think, to me, the ultimate de- definition of value is, is that just progress. Are we making progress? And do we agree that we made progress? And customers love salespeople who are doing
1: that because they're saying, you're helping me make progress. You're helping me yes. get to the conclusion in a way that I may not know how to do because I'm not buying this stuff all the time, I'm not solving these problems all the time. So you're right. helping me make progress. Number one, number two is you're helping me reduce the amount of time I have to spend on yep. this. Uh, you know, rather than you know look at the old Gartner spaghetti chart, is it? You know, I have to go back and forth, back and forth, and so on. If I can find a way to to simplify this and achieve more in the same amount of time or achieve more in less time. You know, that's, I mean, think of the value that you create for each person on that. And we're all time poor and and the customers get really confused with this stuff. So, you know, designing these high, you know, applying, again, I think taking the design thinking principles and applying that to, how we design and conduct meetings, not how we prepare for meetings
0: um, is is really a game changer. Right. And I, I am an advocate for you know, creating a, a standard definition of productivity for sales. And that definition is just the way economists talk about productivity. It's rate of output per unit of input. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. how many dollars of revenue is a seller generating per hour of actual sales time? Mm-hmm. And I had the fortune to manage sales teams with this long time ago, uh, just given a certain accounting system we had. But you have so much visibility. But to your point about time being the limited, most limiting aspect of it, you want to know what the value of each unit of time is. Yeah, And, and you could take this, I think, <laughs> to the next step, and say, okay, well, if we can figure that out, which is not that hard, is then maybe part of the way we compensate sellers is based on their productivity, not on the ultimate output, right? This, you can have an expectation from productivity to certain people is is the more productive you are, the more you're generating per unit of of time. Yeah. I'll pay them. More. I'll pay them more because that yeah. means the ultimate that means the ultimate productive capacity of my organization is greater. Yeah, and I think there are different ways
1: we measure this, and so on and so forth, and we can tie comp or some other things to it. But but it is really is how do we accomplish more in a given unit of time? How do we help our customers accomplish more in a given unit
0: of time? Well, and that's the key one. Yeah, to me, the great sellers are the ones that do the latter that you just talked about, right? They're the ones yeah. that yeah yeah you know, the description of the the woman that that was the top seller that. You know, it's like the analogous to the analogous to the basketball player that just makes it look too easy, right? You think they're not trying, but they're actually trying and and scoring a ton of points.
1: And they've figured out how to do that in the most effective way possible. Um, you know, and and you know, then you know, I mean, that's a real win.
0: Yeah, for everybody, for everybody, seller and and customer. All right, Dave. We're going to end it there. We've, gosh, we've uh, <laughs> had a nice, a nice long conversation today. As always, we've covered a lot. You. We've covered, covered a lot. Up. Yep. So um, we'll make sure we do this again. But why don't you tell folks how they can find out more about you? If you're not subscribing to Dave's blog, by the way, you should. It's it's on my my list. I get it all the time. Can't wait to read the new ones. Very thought provoking writing about <laughs> sales. So tell people they can find out more about you.
1: That's partners excellence dot com. Uh and it's it's published right, right now. I'm at about three uh posts a week. Uh I'm off a little bit. I usually try and do five posts a week. Uh, LinkedIn is is Dave Brock or or David Brock. Uh Twitter is at David A. Brock.
0: Yeah, and David makes me feel bad because he doesn't he writes long posts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he finds the time to do that, but they're always worth your time. So, Dave, thank you very much, and we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Andy. It's always such a pleasure. Okay, friends, that's it for this Archive episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. So grateful, as always, for your support of this podcast, and I want to thank my friend Dave Brock for sharing his wisdom with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.